Hello, and welcome to the Netflix Q1 2023 earnings interview. I'm Spencer Wong, VP of Finance, IR and Corporate Development. Joining me today are co-CEOs Ted Sarandos and Greg Peters and CFO Spence Newman. Our interviewer this quarter is Jessica Reef Ehrlich. And as a reminder, we will be making forward-looking statements and actual results may vary. With that, Jessica, I'm going to turn it over to you for your first question. Thank you. So let's start with Ted and Greg. You've worked together for over 15 years, but this is your first quarter as co-CEOs. Are there any highlights you want to share? Well, Jessica, as you pointed out, uh, it's our first quarter together as co-CEOs, but 15 years working together. Um, and in those 15 years, you know, you build a lot of respect and uh, um, trust in each other to help you get through, through some trying times. And not to let you down about there's there no drama, but this was pretty much a business as usual quarter for us, uh, having done this, you know, together for so long. And uh, he, Greg and I uh, enjoy the same kind of trust, respect, and shorthand uh, that I enjoyed with Reed for so many years. I know Greg did as well. Uh, so um, it's not as eventful as folks might have thought, and it's really been uh, incredibly and wonderfully professionally stimulating uh, to have a co-CEO uh, to get to tackle big problems together. So uh, I think one of the things that we'll look back at Reed's incredible 25 years at Netflix, one of the great accomplishments is uh, facilitating uh, this very, very smooth transition and succession. Great. So you've recently reduced prices in 116 countries. Is this a more local approach similar to what you did in India in 2021, or is the impetus to enable a successful introduction of password sharing and advertising tiers? Uh, I can take this one if you want. Uh, Jessica, this is really about, you know, we've talked the last few quarters about uh, further refining our, our pricing strategy and monetization. And if you think back to when we did our global launch in 2016, it was pretty much across the board, a bit of a skim approach and, and not particularly sophisticated in terms of our pricing. So think of this as kind of that next step in our evolution of a bit of a better uh, market fit, product market fit, pricing fit, um, with the aim of uh, growing our penetration in these markets and also better medium and, and a long-term revenue. So better for our members, better for our business. But I just want to emphasize this is not a, a material to our business anytime in the near term for sure. So it's a lot of countries, but it represents less than 5% of our revenue. Um, and so it's uh, it's something that will, uh, over, over the long term, hopefully will benefit us. And, you know, we can point to, you know, an example and success is sort of like what we saw in India. So last year, back in December of 21, we launched, we dropped prices in India between 20 to 60%. We saw engagement over the past year grow by about 30%, high growth in paid net ads. And also revenue, FX neutral revenue growth actually accelerated from uh, 19% in the year prior to 24% last year. So that's, you know, we're not saying every market's going to play out like that, but that's what it would look like in success. Great. Let's move on to password sharing. What have you seen in your Q1 new market launches, um, churn as well as conversion? And can you give us any specific color on what you've seen in Canada, um, whether it's in terms of new subs versus add-ons? Yeah, uh, I'll take that one. So uh, this this is an important transition for us, uh, and so we're working hard to make sure that we do it well and as thoughtfully as we can. Uh, this last set of country rollouts have gone well, uh, and, and maybe most importantly, we're directionally consistent with what we uh, saw in Latin America. So just to remind people what that looks like, very much like a price increase, we see an initial cancel reaction, and then we build out of that, both in terms of membership um, and revenue, as borrowers sign up for their own Netflix accounts, and existing members purchase that extra member uh, facility for folks that they want to share with. 
So first of all, it was a strong validation to see consistent results in these new countries because you know, they're different market characteristics, different from each other, and also different from the, the original Latin American rollout countries. So to get to a positive outcome, you mentioned Canada. Uh, you know, we're in now in a positive member and positive revenue position uh, uh, relative to pre-rollout. So that's a really strong confirmation that we've got an approach that we can apply in many different countries uh, with different market characteristics, including our uh, largest revenue countries. Uh, in fact, we actually, we could have launched that solution. We actually considered that option. Um, but we also learned from this last set of launches uh, about some improvements we can do, especially in areas that matter a lot to our members. Things like having seamless access to Netflix as they've always been using it on the go or while traveling, um, as well as making sure that we've got good tools for them to manage access to their accounts and their devices. So all in, uh, you know, we felt based on those results, it was better to take a little bit of extra time, uh, incorporate those learnings, uh, and make this transition as smooth as possible as we can for members. Um, and we think that approach also best serves the long-term business uh, goals as well. So we're going to launch uh, uh, this new improved version broadly, including in the United States in Q2. So as a follow-up, so the cadence, you, you just said the U.S. of Q2, how about the rest of the world? And is there, you know, can you give us your thoughts on pricing and whether you have a preference for a current borrower to become a subscriber or an add-on? Yeah, um, so that launch we're doing in Q2 is a very broad launch. It includes the United States, includes many, many other countries. I mean, we reserve the right for some, you know, countries uh, where we think there's, you know, a, a different approach. But I would say the bulk uh, of, of our countries, and certainly when you think about it from a revenue perspective, the vast majority um, uh, will be, you know, will be rolling out in Q2. Um, you mentioned in terms of pricing, uh, you know, we'll look at that on a market-by-market -market basis, but obviously we tested different pricing uh, in these last rollouts than what we tested in, in Latin America, and that gives you a sense about how we're thinking about, um, you know, what is optimal pricing, especially in um, more affluent countries, so I'll leave it at that. Um, and then in terms of preference, what we're trying to do is create a structure that really um, supports choice. So that gives an opportunity for folks to, to spin off to uh, borrower accounts where they think that's the right solution for them or for use cases, which are legitimate use cases where somebody wants to, you know, uh, basically, you know, buy Netflix for, you know, a, a family member or something like that. We want that extra member, um, you know, to be in place too. So we don't really have, I'd say, a strong preference. We're not trying to steer um, in one perspective, other than using pricing, you know, to both satisfy those, you know, um, customer cho choice goals, as well as thinking about long-term revenue optimization. One, one more on password sharing. Are there any incremental costs? It seems like content, distribution, marketing are already in your expenses. So is the incremental margin 100% or, or are there plans to reinvest some of this revenue so it doesn't all flow through? Well, I'll leave this. Go ahead. Do you want to take a second? Yeah, Go for it. Go no, you, okay. you got it. You got it. You got it. I was going to say, there's, there's really not, other than just kind of just the general kind of allocation of resources, I wouldn't say there's uh, real incremental cost to this, but of course we always want to reinvest. So as you kind of see with our, our, our kind of guidance and our objectives generally, Jessica, we're looking to uh, reaccelerate our revenue growth. That's the path that we're on right now. And as we do that, we want to kind of balance uh, you know, gradually increasing margins. You see that in our, in our guide where we're looking to tick up margins a bit to the 18 to 20% range full year relative to just under 18% last year. 
but balance that with that big prize ahead of us. So reinvesting to more and more great entertainment for our members and drive that flywheel of more entertainment, more value for members, and ultimately more and more members over time, and then build a really, really big and profitable business. So let's move on to advertising. Netflix appears to have a huge advantage in let's call it television advertising. I mean, you, you pretty much have nothing to lose from a legacy perspective and everything to gain on an AVOD platform. Given the limited ad load, premium video content, your humongous reach and engagement with some pretty hard to reach demographics, as well as the ongoing mass transition from linear to streaming, your position is enviable. Having said that, you seem to be very careful in your advertising rollout. Can you give us your key learnings to date and what the growing pains have been so far? Yeah, as you state, we're, we're you know, significantly optimistic about the long-term opportunity for the reasons that you mentioned. Uh, but, you know, we've always expected and we continue to expect, frankly, this to be a gradual build. It follows, you know, a very similar process that we've used in so many other areas where, you know, we get in, uh, we learn as we go, we iterate, and we found that, you know, um, having that approach, you know, yields basically, you know, great long-term outcomes um, as we sort of grow and learn. So I would say, you know, where we're at today, you know, we've got a lot of work to do to develop, continue to develop uh, features that support advertisers. We're rolling out things like measurement and verification, but we've got, you know, a bigger, long, longer roadmap that we have to go do there. We're improving our go-to-market and sales capabilities in partnership with Microsoft. There's a lot of, you know, good work that we have to go do, and some of this is hard work because it's very country by country. Um, you've seen us add uh, programmatic private marketplace that gives advertisers more ways to buy as we grow inventory. And then we're also trying to improve things on the consumer-facing side. So, you know, we're adding um, more features to the ad plan. We're making that experience better for members. And, you know, through that sort of process, you know, we, you know, expect those iterations, which we're trying to go as fast as we can on them uh, while being judicious and thoughtful about the business, to really, you know, add up over a period of time into a significant, um, you know, highly material and highly lucrative high-margin uh, business. But there's plenty to go do, and, you know, and we're trying to maintain a fast pace, but also a thoughtful pace. Given a lot of press reports uh, regarding your buildup of ad tech capabilities, can you provide an overview of plans, timeframe, and cost? Yeah, I would say, you know, we have ambition, um, you know, to be innovative in this space. And a lot of that innovation is thinking about, um, not a one-size-fits-all in terms of the, the member experience and thinking about, you know, what's the right time to fly to NAD, um, things like that. But I would also say that, you know, we're very much in the mode right now where we're doing a lot of work that is following a well-trodden path um, to build a, uh, you know, a big business. Back to, you know, when you think about, you know, verification, measurement, et cetera, um, you know, what we're doing on programmatic, um, those are, you know, sort of, I'd say, relatively straightforward things. So a lot of the work that we're doing is really um, heavily in that space. And then in terms of incremental costs, I could, Spence, do you want to, you know, chime in here? Sure. I see, I'd say um, just generally, Jessica, we, we try to, you know, in all of this, you know, first thing, we've always, we've talked about this crawl, walk, run, which, which Greg mentioned, being very thoughtful, methodical, how we're building the business. And, and with that also how it, how it impacts our, our overall financials, our revenue and our incre incremental profit contribution. And we believe we can do that in a very healthy way. So that's what we're building towards. So yes, there is some cost to this, both in terms of the cost to the 
Microsoft partnership and the cost to kind of some building out of our capabilities, people as well as tech capabilities, but all very manageable. Uh, we also talked about a little bit of uh, content costs as we, we continue to kind of, we, we increased our, our level of, of, of content parity on the, on the plan uh, this past quarter, which is great. So it's about 95% plus of, of viewing parity, which is again, a great progress. So we're, we keep moving forward, but this is all at a level that we believe is not just better for our members with a lower price option, but better for our business. And we think we could do it with, um, and are doing it in a way that's, I would say without being overly specific, think of it as like, you know, 50% or more incremental profit contribution um, to the business. When you come to the May um, advertising upfront, which is in a couple of weeks, um, it sounds like you're coming with the standard tier now. Um, do you have any plans to introduce it to your premium tier? And how much scale, um, meaning, you know, how many subs do you expect on the platform when you when you roll out? When, when the upfront commitments come in, in, in the fall, how much scale will you have? Yeah, so on your first question, you know, we're, we're always thinking about and working to improve that plan structure, the pricing. We've got two goals in mind uh, when we do that. One is, you know, we want a to give a wide range of consumers and ideally increasingly wide range of consumers access to our great stories at a range of prices with appropriate, you know, corresponding features. And the second goal is thinking about optimizing uh, long-term revenue. And, you know, a good example of this is, you know, based on the economics of our ads plan, based on the limited switching behavior that we've seen off of standard and premium, um, we've upgraded the ads plan features, both in terms of video resolution or video quality and number of concurrent streams, um, because we think it supports both of those goals. Uh, so that's a good example of that. I would say beyond that, uh, we've got, you know, we're, we'll continue to evaluate as we always do. You've seen us make moves in this space before, but we've got nothing more to add uh, on that today. Um, and then in terms of scale, obviously we're growing. Uh, every day we grow and we're seeking to continue to, to, to grow, but we're not going to sort of announce or, or a target or what we expect a forecast, let's say, for um, upfronts at this point. One more advertising question and then I'll move on. But can you provide ARPU specifics on, on what you've seen so far? Because you mentioned in, in the release um, that the revenue is actually higher than even standard. So it seems like so far so good. Yeah, I, I can jump in. I mean, uh, yes, overall, uh, we're pleased with our kind of per member uh, ad plan economics. It's higher um, than our basic plan overall. And as you say, in, in the U.S., it's actually even higher than our standard plan. So we, we really like um, the path we're on, the, tra the trajectory we have. And as I said, it's, it's kind of a win-win because it's a lower price option for our members. And it's both kind of incremental revenue, incremental profit, to, uh, uh, as a bit for the business, so it makes the business stronger, which of course we can then reinvest into more and more great entertainment. So, so we like the path, but again, it's, it's early. We're only a couple quarters into this, Jessica, so we're going to get better, as as Greg said, better targeting and measurement, better kind of tools and and buying options for advertisers. Advertisers. So we think all of that will actually kind of build on this, so that we'll reinforce and strengthen that kind of premium CPM ad network that we're building. Um, so maybe switching gears a little bit to. to the capital returns and free cash flow. Um, you did raise your free cash flow guidance, um, but you, you kept your margins the same for this year. Um, what are your longer-term margin growth or expectations at this point? Um, you know, Pre-COVID, you had indicated 300 basis points of improvement per year over a few-year period. Can you, can you provide any update to that? Well, we're not, we've never provided a, a long-term guide to our margins. Uh, 
but I'd say we're already a place where we feel great about the business that we have. It's a very, it's a great business model. It's a business at scale with over 30 billion of revenue, you know, healthy profit margins, growing margins, growing free cash flow. So that's sort of the starting point. And as I mentioned before, we're trying to balance as we reaccelerate revenue, um, kicking up those margins with, with also reinvesting back into the business, back, back into that member base, back into that big prize where we feel like we're so small today. We've talked on recent earnings calls where we represent, we believe, roughly 5% of that direct consumer spend in the areas of entertainment that we're participating in today, primarily in film, TV, and games. And when we think about even just the, the member population that's available, those 1 billion-plus broadband households that even today – you know, roughly 450, 500 million of those being connected TV households. And we only have 230 million-ish paying members today, roughly, right? So so that's why we're so focused on um, addressing with paid sharing and then just making our business and our, 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 our the value that we bring to the service uh, better each day to bring in more members. So that's that's really what we're working towards. And then long-term, we just – we don't see like ourselves uh, approaching a near-term ceiling. There's lots of proxies out there, entertainment services and networks at scale – uh, traditionally have been well above our roughly 20% operating margin. So we believe we have a long way to go, and we have some inherent advantages. We're a truly global entertainment network, perhaps the first, uh, with really healthy leading engagement um, and a really scalable uh, content model. So we believe we've got a long way to go, but not really putting, putting more specific guidance out for now. Just, just if I could add an example of that, uh, of the scale of the business being global, is that every one of our big content wins start as a local win. Uh, and then in success, uh, they roll out, or they get regional, then they reach the diaspora, then they get global, and it's huge success. And there's no marginal cost to all that additional audience when we get it right. So by driving, creating those stories that drive growth of the business in local territories, provides content into the pool that people can fall in love with, and it's just as likely that we can get a gigantic hit uh, from anywhere in the world. And that's really the scale of our operating business. And to go back to what Spen said about the potential for uh, to even grow margins beyond where we're at today is very, very high. Could you give us an update on your capital return plans? I mean, how are you thinking about, on, you know, you announced the $1.2 million buyback in Q1, but relative to your free cash flow um, and incredible balance sheet, there's, you have a lot of capacity. So, you know, can you give us any color on how you're thinking about capital returns over the longer term? Sure. Spencer, I, do you, you want to take that one? Sorry. Yeah, I can take that one. Uh, thanks, Jessica, for the, the question. And uh, we are happy uh, to be uh, fully investment grade uh, as of uh, Q1. Uh, so that's a nice uh, milestone uh, for the company. Uh, and you're right, uh, there's no change to our uh, capital allocation uh, philosophy. So we are still targeting to maintain minimum cash equivalent to roughly two months of revenue. Um, based on the Q1 numbers, that's about $5.4 billion of minimum cash. We ended the quarter with about $7.8 billion on the balance sheet. So we do have about $2.4 billion of excess cash. Um, so that is why we did indicate in the letter that our share purchases will accelerate uh, over the course of uh, the year. And then one other minor thing I forgot to mention in my intro, that this video interview will include forward-looking statements. The natural results may vary. So I do want to say that. And here's evidence that this video interview is actually not scripted. So back to you, Jessica. Thank you. So, Ted, how are you preparing for a potential writer's strike? Potential, if well, not likely. Well, Jessica, let's first place say we respect the writers um, and we respect the WGA and we couldn't be here without them. Um, we don't want to strike. 
The last time there was a strike, it was devastating to creators. It was really hard on the industry. It was painful for local economies that support production. And it was very, very, very bad for fans. Uh, so if there's a strike, uh, and we want to work really hard to make sure we can find a fair and equitable uh, uh, deal so we can avoid one. Uh, but if there is one, uh, we have a, you know, a large base of uh, upcoming shows and films uh, from around the world. Uh, so we could probably serve our, our members better than most. Uh, and we really don't, we really don't want this to happen, uh, but we have to make plans for the worst. And so we do have a, you know, a pretty robust slate of releases for, to take us into a long time. But just be, just be clear, we're at the table and we're going to try to uh, uh, get to an equitable solution so there isn't a strike. And beyond the strike, just, you know, once, once you get that, we get past that. Um, how do you expect content spending to change over the next few years? You've kind of been at this $17 billion uh, cadence. You know, it, does it depend on revenue growth? Can you give us some color on how you're thinking about that? Well, yes, it depends on revenue growth. And also keep in mind that the way that revenue or the way that content spend hits us uh, is with startup productions and deliveries. Uh, we still work through or we came through or comping off of those post-COVID floodgates opening and uh, so that does, you know, throw, makes the content spend a little lumpier. Uh, we expect to be back to about the 17 billion level in 24. Uh, and uh, and the, the rate of growth depends on the rate of, re of revenue growth for sure. Do you have but, any and just, to, just to, just to yeah. add to Ted's point, because I totally agree with all of that. And, um, but again, it's, it's uh, you know, there, there's a big opportunity ahead. So I just want to reinforce that we're, we're not going to, we, we said we'd stay at roughly 17 billion on average over a few year period over that 2022 to 24 period. But there's a big entertainment market to go after beyond that. So as we reaccelerate revenue, we see a lot of opportunity to grow into that viewing and engagement and, and, um, and business opportunity ahead. So we expect to be there and we just have to build into it. Absolutely. Do you have any thoughts on revisiting your film strategy, um, you know, the, the, in terms of, like, theatrical output as well as distribution? You've had so much success at the Academy Awards, so does that change anything for you? Um, and you also recently had a restructuring in this division. Is there anything to read from that? No, Jessica, you know, the, the, the film division is doing great. They really are um, building some great films. As you point out, the success at the Oscars was great, but the thing that even better than that was the, the movies that won so big uh, we're also very, very popular with fans. So this is uh, award-winning, critical acclaim, and enormously popular with fans. Uh, even, you know, like I said, with All Quiet on the Western Front was that. Uh, Pinocchio certainly was that. Uh, and we're really proud of the, the films that are, were in the mix because they were loved by fans. Um, so we're really happy with the investment in film. We're try of course, we're trying to approve it like we do with all of our films. Uh, but our release strategy, remember, there's a lot of ways to create and uh, collect demand for a film. Uh, driving folks to a theater is just not our business. Uh, we create that demand and we collect that demand on our subscription service with our members. Uh, and I think having big, new, desirable content, including feature films in the first window, drives value for our members and drives value to the business. So um, uh, no major changes in play except for trying to continue uh, to improve uh, the films for our members and make a big splash with films that are loved and watched. And, and it's, it's really it's really leaning into an advantage. We believe an advantage we have of delivering that value to our members. But because of our our reach and our scale to have over 230 million paying members at our average uh, revenue per member, it affords the opportunity to invest in these big movies, bring them to our 
bring them to our members is just one other um, piece or area variety of content and must-watch content uh, and entertainment for our members. So, so it's really kind of leaning into that advantage. And I think it's, it's tempting to make the comparison between the services, but the other services don't have that, that scale, as you pointed out, Spencer. They don't have the revenue base or the viewer base to support with a single window the way we can support even big-budget films with a single window on Netflix. How is your live strategy evolving? And Chris Brock was a huge hit, uh, but Love is Blind had some technical issues. Um, is, is live a big advertising driver? Do you need to invest more to beef up your technical capabilities? Greg, you want to grab that? Yeah, I'll, I'll kick it off. I'd start by saying, uh, we're, yeah, we're, we're really sorry to have disappointed so many people. Uh, we didn't meet the standard that we expect of ourselves to serve our members. And just to be clear from a technical perspective, you know, uh, we've got the infrastructure. We had just a bug that we introduced um, actually when we um, implemented some changes to try and improve live streaming performance after the last live broadcast, Chris Rock in March. Um, and we just didn't see this bug in internal testing because it only became apparent once we put sort of multiple systems interacting with each other under the, the load of millions of people trying to watch um, Love is Blind. So. Uh, we hate it when these things happen, uh, but we'll learn from it and we'll get better. And, you know, it, it, we, we, we do have the fundamental infrastructure that we need. Um, and I would say the good news is that, you know, ultimately, uh, you know, 6.5 million viewers watched uh, and enjoyed the show. Then I'll turn it over to Ted to talk about more of the strategy side. Yeah, look, as we've said, we want to use live when it makes sense creatively, when it uh, helps the, the, the content itself. So um, a reunion show that's going to generate news and buzz, it, it really does play better live when people can enjoy it together. Uh, um, certainly the Chris, Chris Rock stand-up show played out so well because there's so much anticipation for what he's going to say in that set. So when we have the opportunities to do projects like that, you know, we like the fact that we have the option to do it. As, Chris, as Greg said, we were super uh, uh, disappointed to, to not be able to come across with the live product for, for, for everyone who wanted it. Uh, on Love is Blind reunion, uh, but we're super thrilled that people love the show, and it does point to the kind of love for that brand and for the growing love for those unscripted brands on Netflix, uh, and some of them will be live, and I do think sometimes those results-oriented shows do a little, play out a little bit better on live, and they do generate a lot of conversation, uh, but keep in mind, like on Chris Rock, about 90% of the viewing uh, happened after, uh, but it doesn't change the fact that it was a big event when it happened live. Is it a big driver of advertising? Uh, we're not current. Go, go ahead, you take it. I was just say we're not currently have advertising in the uh, in the live in the live broadcast. Right. Um, I have a, one more question on passwords. I'm just go back to that for a second. But of the 30 million you can um, and 100 million plus global borrowers, um, it, that, that sounds like from your release that's the, that's actually the number of households. What is the number of potential subs or add-ons? I mean, what is the potential conversion from these 100 million plus households? Well, to some degree, I mean, the borrowers, the borrowers that represent, you know, well-qualified people in the sense that they have all the technical needs they need, you know, to get to Netflix, uh, you know, the smart TV, the broadband access. Um, they know how the system works. Uh, they've clearly enjoyed content, uh, you know, on the service before. So. Um, you know, having said that, you know, we see a uh, sort of, you know, a range of engagement amongst those borrowers. So some folks are, you know, are watching as much, uh, you know, of our shows as a, as a normal paying account. And those folks are very strong likelihood to convert, I would say. 
and then you know we see that tailor off taper off rather um you know through that range of folks and you know if you're watching much less it's much less likely that you'll ultimately convert but even in that case i'd say you know this represents um a really important structural shift where we'll develop that one-to-one -one relationship uh, without pricing distortion without membership distortion with a, with a whole new range of members so we'll see membership grow through that um, approach we'll see revenue grow through it as well but we'll also see um, you know a situation where in high viewer penetration markets like the United States you mentioned the, the stats there you know some of those folks won't convert but they'll represent essentially a pool of people that we can then go after with you know improving our offering you know more amazing movies you know Ted talked about that more amazing series um, more amazing games uh, in the fullness of time that'll get those folks ultimately to convert over members as well. And then just also going back to like advertising, what are the advertising features that you are most excited about? Well, again, we're sort of in this in this mode where there's what I'm you know super excited about, and then there's the 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 work that we really need to do for the business, which I'm also excited with it because it's just about how we get to be bigger. So there's sort of the you know the 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 brass tacks pieces, which um you know are a lot about measurement, verification, targeting, expanding the ways for advertisers to buy. So I'm excited from a sort of uh, you know immediacy of business returns for those pieces. But then when you think about like from a technology and product experience perspective, what am I excited about there? That's again where I think we have an opportunity to bring um, the specific characteristics of a you know premium, uh, fully addressable, fully targetable, fully deterministic ad um, streaming system, you know, to this world. And so that means that we can do a whole range of things in terms of how we flight creatives. Um, from brands associated with certain shows. It thinks about how we tailor the user experience to be specific to what the user needs in a moment rather than having a one-size-fits-all set of rules in terms of how we flight ads. So there's just a whole uh, amazing line of innovation that we can go after. And we'll be going after it, for, frankly, for years. Um, and we don't even know what all those things are because mostly we'll be working with advertisers and members to try things and then let, you know, let them tell us what's working and what's not. What do you consider the walk phase? Well, I think we're sort of getting into the walk phase, and that it's probably a, a, um, a combination of things. One is, you know, scale. Obviously, scale is relevant in the business, so we, have, you know, we're getting to a certain size of scale that that um, shifts how advertisers think about us. Part of it is the technical features that um, advertisers that face advertisers. So that's you know very much along the lines of this measurement, verification, targeting the programmatic buying capability, that's a component of it. Um, so those, those I think, really constitute. So I'd characterize that we're really, you know, we're, we're basically getting into that middle phase of growth, and we've got a lot of work, frankly, to do in that before we get to the run phase. You know, we talked about it's a, a multi-year build and, and, and a gradual build and crawl, walk, run, and, you know, we're, we're only a couple quarters into this, so I don't know, Greg, if you would agree, but I, I I would hope we're in the walk phase by the end of the year and into next year, but I think this is a year of getting from crawl to walk. Yeah, that sounds right. I just wanted to clarify something, Spence. I think you said this is a 50% margin. I mean, typically advertising can be as high as 80 or 85% margins. Is that, are you, do you, do you expect to build up to that or do you think it's really just a 50% plus business? 
Well, I, I put plus in there. So I said at least 50%, and it was really just to highlight the fact that we're still in startup mode of this business, um, and so leaning a little conservative. But, yes, our expectations over time is that it would be uh, meaningfully over 50%, but I don't want to give a specific number yet. Okay. Moving on to gaming, um, can you give us some data points on engagement and what you're seeing on retention? Yeah, I'm not going to uh, give you those specific points, but let me just to review sort of where we're at uh, more broadly. You know, we've got 55 games out to date. We've got 40 more in the queue for this year. Um, yeah, there's very exciting games. If you want to try a few out, I'd recommend Terra Nil. That's a reverse city builder, so a sort of twist on that genre. We've got Mighty Quest launching today. Um, our first new game from an internal studio, which is Oxenfree 2, is coming later this year. So you can sort of see us build into a combination of licensing and now layering in, um, you know, internally developed games into that. And, you know, and it's really, you know, it's following a trajectory that we've seen before, I would say, um, on these other new content categories that we've added. If you think about, you know, film and, you you know, if you heard you know, folks here talk about sort of that, that film progress or nonfiction or international where we sort of build into this over, you know, a multi-year period. And, you know, to reinforce, you know, you mentioned those metrics. I mean, the fundamental goal here, obviously, is to give uh, our members a new entertainment modality and more, you know, ways to enjoy um, incredible, you know, uh, universes and, and, and deepen their fandom. Um, and we do that with uh, an effort to drive the primary metrics we have on the, on the consumer-facing side, which is, you know, engagement with the service, which leads to retention and incredible stories that people are talking about, games that are must-play games um, that uh, create buzz uh, off the service and motivate people to sign up. Are there plans to directly monetize games, you know, for example, advertising or licensing IP to game developers? Not currently. Uh, so we think that very consistent what we've done in other parts of the business. The best thing for us to do is really focus on um, you know, the, the core initiative, which for us right now is um, how do we bring games, uh, you know, and games based on our IP to our members, to fans of that IP directly. And also we believe that, you know, we want to have a differentiated gaming experience. And part of that is giving game creators the ability to think about, you know, building games sheerly from the perspective of player enjoyment and not having to worry about other forms of monetization, whether it be ads or in-game payment. So maybe turning to India, which is one of the biggest global markets and one of the fastest growing markets really in the world right now. Um, Spence, you mentioned the, the pricing change in 21, and Ted, you recently said at a panel um, earlier in the year, I think you were in India, um, yeah. you know, that is your fastest growing market, and you've given the statistics engagement of 30%, revenue of 24%. Um, but I think, Ted, you said that you're increasing your local originals from 28 last year. Can you just talk a little bit about this market? Um, you know, like, what are your longer-term plans? Is, the, is it actually profitable, or is this something that we, where we can see a real change in, in, in contribution? Look, I think what we talked about earlier, when we, got the, when we get the pricing a little better, uh, more suited to the market, you can see that we can grow revenue and, and therefore and we grow engagement. Uh, we have to get the content that people just really flip out for. Um, we've seen a steady improvement in that quarter over quarter, uh, both in our films and our series. Uh, Rana Nadu now is a great show that we just, you know, the people are loving all over the country. 
um, and it causes a great deal of excitement for the service. Now, we have, again, we have to get the pricing and the payment methods right. Uh, India is a big prize because it's in a, an enormous population of entertainment-loving people, and you just have got to have the product that they love, and it's in, in a product that they and that you can do business with them together. So we've got uh, we're doing the creative part, and we're getting the pricing better, and there's always lots of promise to continue to grow in India. Um, it is a very specific uh, market in terms of they like local content, uh, but also you're seeing their local content is traveling more than ever. Uh, this was an incredible year. I think this is what you may be referring to, Jessica, that I was talking about movies like RRR, uh, which did business all over the world, uh, and uh, Gangubai was this really fantastic film that was in the hunt for the for um, for best foreign language feature. So you look at all these things and say well, that as the as the, the content opportunity continues to scale and our ability to access the market and thrill those audiences continues to grow, we could do quite well in India. Um, we're a long ways from that. We're still, you know, still investing against it, and I think that we'll ultimately do great in India. Jessica, we have uh, time for uh, two last questions, please. Um, okay, so moving on to like ancillary revenue and products, um, can you give us an outlook or an update on, on, you know, just what you're seeing, what your expectations are for consumer products? I mean, you announced the Lacoste collaboration for clothing on your eight most iconic, iconic shows, but you you also have other collaborations, so. You know, I, I know it just seems like an area that now that you're building up your own content, it seems to provide a, a huge incremental opportunity. Yeah, we continue to grow it. The primary driver for our consumer product business is to build and deepen fandom. Uh, it does drive some revenue. Uh, but in general, what we're really looking for is those opportunities to help fans connect with their favorite shows, their favorite films, their favorite talent uh, by wearing the shirt or carrying the notebook. Uh, and other ways that people really like to express their fandom. And also through these very successful live experiences, uh, the Bridgerton experience or the Stranger Things uh, experiences that we that travel around the world. We're super excited about all of them. And you see us stepping into even a newer one with uh, the Stranger Things uh, stage show. And there's all kinds of amazing stuff coming in that world. But keep in mind that it's mostly to build fandom uh, in, uh, in, a, in a way that can drive revenue, but mostly it strengthens the core of the business. Right. Um, I guess one last one. So it, it just a follow-up on password sharing. Um, in the markets where you've rolled out password sharing, have you seen any movement between the tiers? Like, for example, a household that has a premium subscription, are they going to two standard or, you know, anything like that? Yeah, we see some of those effects, and right, and, and we know that in especially price-sensitive markets, right? So this is also a situation which is very different market by market. But in some price-sensitive markets, um, you know, consumers essentially got to a practical or informal pricing structure by, you know, subscribing to premium and then sharing this out and then oftentimes, you know, actually having people, you know, pay uh, for a fraction of that, um, you know, uh, from as they're sharing it. So, um, you know, associated with that, you know, we see some of that being shifted off of those plans and having those people sign up for individual plans, you know, as we rationalize that structure, um, implement um, the changes that prevent password sharing, and also have them be able to use things like extra member or, in countries where it's relevant, the um, ads plan as a new entry-level price. So I think you're going to see some of that sorting. 
And again, we think this really, you know, it's, it's better for the business. Ultimately, it sets us up structurally to have more members, to have a one-to-one -one relationship with those members, to have all the systems that we have work more correctly, to have more, you know, transparent uh, sort of pricing connections um, with those different members on the different plans. Uh, so we're excited about, you know, getting to that point. But again, I would characterize this as a very country-specific kind of approach where some countries respond that way and other countries um, you know, it really wasn't about that. It was much more about casual sharing. And just like so this ad really quick, the way that we win over those sharers and the way that we grow the ad plan is to have the content that people cannot live without. Uh, and let me just tell you real quick before we get into the close here uh, how we're doing on that front. Because uh, this quarter alone, this past in Q1, Night Agent became our sixth biggest original season of television in our history. Uh, incredible success. We saw returning seasons of You for season four, a third season of Outer Banks, a second season of Ginny and Georgia, all shows that have grown from their original first, se first seasons, uh, and also shows that have created incredible new star stars like Chase Stokes and Antonia Gentry and Madeline Klein and Penn Bragley, who now have huge fan bases around the world. Uh, we saw The Glory, uh, which is from Korea and our fourth biggest non-English launch ever. Um, we had incredible big films with big stars like You People, Your Place or Mine, Murder Mystery 2. Uh, did really well in the multi-cam comedy space with the 90s show and in unscripted with Full Swing. So this past quarter, we were super thrilled with the results of the content, and we have to keep that up uh, in order to win over those sharing accounts uh, and also to grow that ad-supported tier. You missed beef. You didn't say that. That was incredible. <laughs> oh, I missed a bunch. You know, Jessica, the reason why when we talk about our content, it sometimes sounds like a laundry list, is it, it's a long list that really illustrates uh, how hard this is to do, which is to hit on uh, the quality and the breadth of the entertainment that people really want. And, and everyone has such remarkably varied tastes that you have to have very different things for different fans, and that's what we're good at doing at scale. And plus amazing. one to beef is being an amazing title. Um, well, that's – by the way, that's, that's new this quarter, and it has kicked off, uh, and it's, having, it's off to a tremendous start. Uh, and, it's, again, another example of – Critical acclaim, uh, likely to do well award season, we hope, uh, but loved by fans. Great. And with Thank that, you. Ted, did you want to uh, take us home? Yeah, I just want to tell you real quick, um, we're really pleased with the quarter. Uh, 2023 is off to a good start. Um, Netflix is the leading streaming service in terms of engagement, revenue, and profits, and streaming is the future of entertainment at home. So on engagement, just yesterday, Nielsen released data that in Q1 to 23, Netflix was the most watched of any broadcaster or streamer in the U.S. by a pretty nice margin. Uh, we have, and we have plenty of room to grow. Even with that tremendous amount of watching, we're about 10% of total TV time in our most established markets like the U.S. and the U.K. On revenue and profit, we're growing. Not as fast as we believe we can, not as fast as we want to, but we are growing and we're profitable. And we have a clear path to reaccelerate growth in both revenue and profit, and we're executing on it. You'll see a broader rollout of, of paid sharing in Q2, and we're going to continue to grow that ad business. And we also are, grow, are aiming to continue to grow free cash flow. As we said, this year we're going to generate about $3.5 billion in free cash and on increased margins. So um, re remember that this uh, uh, account sharing initiative helps us have a larger base of potential paying members uh, that we can continue to serve and grow Netflix long term. And that's why we've been so focused on execution. So the variety and quality of our much-watched movies, our must-watch TV shows, our must-play games, 
Uh, we're going to keep working to improve discovery, uh, to have buzzier and more creative marketing, uh, because when we deliver for our members, we deliver as a business. And we keep doing that by doing it just a bit better and a bit faster than our competition every month, every quarter, and every year. Thanks, Jessica.